0: got a quick announcement for those of you who live in the eastern United States. Next month, I will be on tour, not primarily as a musician, but kind of in a mini-conference mode as a panel participant and a leader of some breakout sessions. Let me explain what I mean. Next month, the BC Roadshow is heading to some eastern cities. The main event is a concert and a live podcast taping. Emery, He is Legend, Tyson Motzenbacher, and Vocal Few will be performing and I'll actually be performing with Tyson. And there will be a live taping of the Bad Christian podcast. But before the concert, there's also a daytime event, kind of a mini conference. There will be a panel on some topic related to faith, as well as breakout sessions after the panel, one of which I will be leading. There will also be some free hangout time between panelists and attendees at the venue before the show starts and I will be at every one of the tour dates of the BC Roadshow except the final two in Akron and Columbus. Where I will be is Nashville, Greensboro, Lynchburg, two New York City shows, and Pittsburgh. So if you want to come say hi, head to bcroadshow.com. There's also a link in the show notes. Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. My name is Dan Koch.
1: And I'm Ellen Morrow.
0: And this is a show where we look for common ground at the intersection of faith, politics, and religion. And every week I say those words in different order. This week, a treat. Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. She is a literature professor at Liberty University. And yes. don't.
1: Let that stop you because I've already listened to the interview and I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to that until like way further in. I had no idea. So I'm so glad I didn't know that she was at Liberty. I shouldn't have said
0: anything maybe. But (laughs) just because Jerry Falwell Jr. is her boss, don't get any ideas. Mm -mm. This, this woman is really fantastic. She's one of the more conservative voices I think we've had on the show. Would you say that's true?
1: Well, Yeah.
0: I think she is like she is, she is a conservative. She has an no unapologetic bones about it. one. Right. But she's incredibly well spoken. She's got good arguments. I thought it was an awesome conversation. And I want to, of course, we want to be open to that. She's just a great addition. So she's also an author, many books recently on reading well, finding the good life through great books. And she was speaking to me from her rented hospital bed in her home.
1: Oh yeah, that's a crazy story.
0: Yeah, which we'll hear about at the beginning. So we'll just dive in with Karen here. This is a a conversation I had with her. Ellen and I will speak about it in the middle and at the end. So here we go. This is me and Karen. Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And it's not just any old being here. You were in a very violent bus accident recently. And you're, uh, I mean, I guess you're recovered well enough?
2: Yeah, I am recovering. I was uh, walking in downtown Nashville on my way to a meeting in early morning, and I got a little lost. I was a little disoriented, distracted, trying to figure out where I was going, and I stepped into a crosswalk and didn't see the bus until it hit me. And so I ended up in Vanderbilt Hospital for eight days with a fractured pelvis, fractured ribs, fractured shoulder, collapsed lungs, and a head laceration. And I'm really honestly just thankful to be here, thankful that I'm expected to make a full recovery. And it was scary, but the Lord preserved my life, and I'm just thankful for that. So the police report had a diagram and everything, and it looks like I landed about 15 to 20 feet away from the crosswalk. and So I
0: saw you speak at the Festival of Faith and Writing at Calvin College in Grand Rapids with my wife, and we both really fell in love with uh, a lot of how you see the world. So that was my introduction to you. But then I picked up this book, Still Evangelical, which is, I guess, a collection of essays by different authors that InterVarsity Press put out. And I really loved this book and yours is the first essay and your title is why I am an evangelical. Mm
2: -hmm. So that, you know,
0: the, the the question of the book is basically, should we still be evangelical given things that appear very problematic? And so somebody unfamiliar with the rest of the book, just hearing that title, they might think, okay, Karen's just going to be like the fundamentalist here. She's just going to make a, a simple defense of all things, evangelical. Trump, Falwell, you know, Franklin Graham, but that's not what you're saying with your essay. So what is the main thrust of that essay?
2: I think we've allowed the term to be redefined by the headlines, by the news, by American politics and American elections and I think we don't know our history. Uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't problems now. It doesn't mean that there have not been problems within evangelicalism from its beginning. There have been problems in the church uh, from its beginnings, and there are problem with human beings since we have existed. So, I'm, and I don't mean to minimize those or ignore them, but evangelicalism is is much broader. It's much bigger. It's much older. Than, than a lot of us really think tend to think about because of the urgency of the headlines today. And so, you know, I try to bring some of that perspective and also do so in a, you know, explain my own kind of story along the way.
0: Speaking of your story, the first thing you say is, well, evangelicalism comes out of the Protestant Reformation in a pretty direct way, and mm-hmm. you're a Protestant. Mm-hmm, uh, but can mm-hmm. you sort of, you know... Not everybody listening to this knows much about the Protestant Reformation or what that stood for or what it means to be in that tradition. So when you say that,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: just what do you mean by that?
2: Most listeners will understand, you know, what the Reformation is. And it was, you know, a, a, a departure from the Catholic Church and many of its its abuses and much of its doctrine. Basically, a few hundred years went by in, in England, which is my area of interest in literature and uh, peripherally, because of that of history, and being a Christian and being a member of the Church of England was just sort of a given. If you, it, w- it was almost like going back to what it was in the Catholic tradition. If you were born into a into a Christian family, whatever you, you were, just that. If you were an English person, ninety nine percent of the people were born into the Church of England, and that was their identity. And evangelicalism was almost like a reboot of the Reformation within larger Protestantism. So just sort of a reawakening of the Reformation.
0: So I see. So you you see the beginning of the evangelical tradition as basically, yeah, a re-upping of what mm-hmm. set Calvin and Luther and Zwingli off in, in the 16th century.
2: That the Bible is central and it, that we all haven't, need to have an individual kind of conversion experience or awakening or being born again, whatever you want to call it. That is what evangelicalism has always been. And if the, you know, if the term is tainted, which I understand for some people today it is, okay, that's, that's, you know, I understand that. But if this is what evangelicalism has been for all for these centuries, and this is what it still it still is what I am or how I express my particular Christian faith, then I mean, that's what it is, even if I change the name.
0: So, so you're just like, <laughs> look, I, I use language to mean what it means, e- even if there is uh, a big counter movement within that movement that doesn't look like your faith.
2: Yeah. I'm an English professor, you know, <laughs>
0: go, go, go
2: figure. This is what the word means. And uh, so that's what it is. So. One thing you say um,
0: is that evangelicalism is suitable for the modern age. Now, depending on how modern people <laughs> want to go, I think there's a lot of people right. that would say the last three or four years, it is quite unsuitable for, but that's probably not what you mean by modern age that you probably have a right. broader view. So what do you mean when you say it is suitable to the modern age?
2: You know, historians and cultural critics and literary critics, philosophers as well, mark the beginning of the modern age or modernity really with the Reformation because of its emphasis on the individual. And so because, as I said before, evangelicalism emphasizes the importance of an individual faith, uh, an individual conversion experience, that ultimately is what modernity is defined by, a more philosophical way of talking about it would be the turn to the subject as opposed to an assumption of some transcendental or eternal authority there's a subjective sense of experience which has positive and negative aspects but that really is what defines modernity and that's the age that we're in and i'm not it's not perfect and it has its problems but we can't escape it. We can't, you know, this, this is who we are. This is the age we live in. And evangelicalism really expresses, you know, our cultural understanding of what it means to be and to, to believe.
0: You know, I, uh, one of the panels that Jaffrey and I saw you on, Caitlin Beatty was, was moderating it. And I interviewed her as well. And I think we'll hear this in a different episode, but one of the things that she said she really appreciated about her evangelical upbringing was the emphasis on, I am responsible for my faith personally. I'm not born into it, that doesn't count. I was thinking about that when you were speaking. Is that sort of one of the things you have in mind?
2: Absolutely. I mean, in, you know, medieval Christian Europe, people were born into that assumption. If you're not a Muslim or you're not a, a pagan Greek, you're you're a Christian. And I think even other times in history, the same assumption can be made. Now I I've yeah. moved from, from from the northeast to the Bible Belt. I see a similar kind of pattern there where people who've grown up in the Bible Belt just sort of assume that they're Christians and can often not even really know what that means because it's just an assumption. And that's just as dangerous as the, I think what the reformers were, or at least one of the things that they were trying to reform.
0: One of the stats that I bring up, all the time either on the show or just in conversation with people is that in 1933 99% of germany was christian mm. and whatever that means mm-hmm. whatever christian means in that sense i am not interested in that what like right. whatever that is is not to the task so right. Right. Uh, i see the value of this sort of personal involvement let me play devil's advocate while we're still on the on the subject of sort of proper evangelicalism historically defined one thing that it seems to me has been around in evangelicalism, I don't know if it's from the beginning and you could tell me, is a kind of anti-intellectualism that comes along with some of this individual stuff. And, mm-hmm. and uh, in particular, what theologians call the, the perspicuity of scripture, which means any person with a basic education, with a Bible translated into their language, can simply read it. And in the plain sense of the words, they can understand the, the Bible essentially as a whole. And that's really the thing in, in my own faith journey that I have come to disbelieve in. And mm-hmm. uh, the anti-intellectualism in general, I really, I have sort of seen what I was raised with for what it was, what it is. And that's been a, a problem too. So I'm sure you're not unaware of these issues. Wh- what do you think about those, to, which seem to me to be related, right. related questions?
2: No, that's an excellent question actually. And and there definitely is sort of an inherent strain of anti-intellectualism within evangelicalism from its beginning. Of course, the best study of that is Mark Knowles' famous book The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind where he gives that entire history. So that that is the error toward which evangelicalism definitely leans, mm. but is a counter Swaying or, you know, a counterbalance to the opposite extreme of well Catholicism before the Reformation and then also high church Anglicanism in England when evangelicalism was birthed, which emphasized the intellect and rationalism to such an extreme or the priesthood and the specialization right. of priests to an extreme. So evangelicalism was really just sort of responding and went and goes to the other extreme. Yeah. And
0: you, so, you get that every time you get some new movement, right? There's a corrective yeah, exactly. measure and then it goes too yeah. far, of course. And yeah.
2: yeah, we have to be careful not to overcorrect because this, Hey, it's the, it's the number one cause of fatal accidents, right?
0: Right. Right.
2: In terms of American evangelicalism and what we see and think about right now, you know, in the news today, what we see in the news is an accurate reflection. I mean, however the polling was done, which I you know, I think we can question to some extent, and you know, eighty percent of, of evangelicals voted for the current president, you know, about twenty years after the same evangelicals were insisting on the importance of character in a presidential election. Something really changed there and we must reckon with it. But we also, you know, one of the other things that has changed a great deal is social media and 24-hour news cycles. Yeah. And I really don't think that what we see in social media and what we see in the news is anywhere near an accurate reflection of real life for most people. The magnification of a few particular voices that occurs through media is many many times more what's really happening on the ground with our neighbors and our church members and so forth but that that's hard for the mind to sort out because the impression is huge i mean myself included my constant exposure to Twitter and the news and social media, it really does shape our perception of reality. You know, what the leaders are saying and doing, it is influential, so we do have to care about it, but we really have to be much more circumspect and 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 weigh that against what's really happening in our own families and with our own neighbors and in our own congregations.
0: All that is well taken, but there, <laughs> there's something kind of funny about this because I think that when people think of Yeah, the media gives a few people megaphones. They think of Franklin Graham. They definitely think of Jerry Falwell Jr. And you are a professor at Liberty University, which means that Jerry Falwell Jr. is your boss.
2: (laughs) uh, That's a a good and honest observation question. Surely it does give me some sort of a unique perspective. I think people would be surprised to find out how little – what gets said in the news or, or tweeted or whatever has anything, how little it has to do with anything that we do in the classroom and how the university operates and what faculty meetings are like and how many unnecessary emails and meetings we have to go to, like everybody else who has has a job. Um, Those are the kinds of things that, you know, that we gripe about, I suppose, or, and just you know, when I go into the classroom and I start teaching 18th century English novels or Victorian literature, none of that matters. Jerry Fowell says over and over again that, you know, he's he supports the president as a private citizen. I don't support the president as a, uh, you know, uh, as a private citizen. He gets a bigger megaphone than I do, and, you know, that's okay. He has a, you know, he is more visible, but... Maybe that's really an example of how we need to think about these things as fellow Christians and evangelicals kind of trying to sift through the, the the biggest voices in the news. I mean, the news survives on whatever is most controversial and dramatic. And, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, that's the nature of the news. And I'm not faulting the news, especially because I know so many excellent journalists who are out there doing such good work. But we're the ones who sit and watch the most sensational mm. things. So we're part of the problem.
0: Yeah. Okay, Ellen, you got a couple things on the agenda here. What's first?
1: Well, I love that she pointed out that evangelicalism is is and was not always will be kind of the same thing. It's just our people's. Perception of it that changes, or the behavior of evangelicals that changes, so that changes the culture's perception of what it is. But it, it is at its roots what it always yeah, has in, been.
0: In a sense, like it's not ever changed that f- for evangelicalism, the Bible is central, and conversion is central, and preaching right. the gospel is central, and the atoning death like, of the Jesus. Key
1: elements. Those are four
0: things are still the there. Same, yeah, and those haven't changed. Now there is a question. And and we're really, we already got to it a bit, and we're going to kind of continue to dance around it, which is like, well, just because that's true, how much of that is trickling down to your average person who would identify as an evangelical? Right. And she talked about how evangelicalism was birthed out of the Church of England when everybody had just kind of become by default Church of England members. And there's certainly a sense in which if you're born in Alabama today— you are by default an evangelical. And, you know, the, the interesting question in my mind is, at what point is there a breaking point where someone does need to start something new like evangelicalism Well, started? it's
1: also weird that it's kind of regional. You don't think about that from, like, the Northwest, for example, or necessarily on the West Coast anywhere, mm. or— even in the Midwest, necessarily. Yeah, the it is, evangelicals it is definitely, pretty big in the
0: Midwest, yeah.
1: It is definitely a Southern Bible Belt kind of thing that that is. Right. And when I lived in Nashville for about a year, it was so weird coming from Seattle and being really excited about my faith at the time. It was when Mars Hill was really, oh, was it ever doing great?
0: I don't know. <laughs>
1: in hindsight, it's weird to say that, but anyway, it was certainly it was very growing exciting. It was very exciting, yeah. and and when I lived in Nashville, I just it was weird being a the type of Christian that knew my theology really well, knew what questions I had, and where you know to go look for the answers. And here I was surrounded by quote unquote Christians who never spoke about their faith, never spoke about Jesus, didn't go to church, did not behave like Christians, but you better not second guess them because absolutely they are Christians and their parents mm. were and their children will be and it was just it was just very confusing for me. Well, it's
0: so different. I mean, from just a sociological perspective, at the height of Mars Hill Church and Mark Driscoll and all that stuff, you've got this growing giant mega church in Seattle, one of the least churched cities in America, I think well, second was, only yeah. to San Francisco, right? It's like 6% of Seattleites are in church on a yeah. Sunday. And also that church is getting attacked by like the stranger right. in Seattle Right. So Weekly. we were just
1: like, oh, these victims. It was very exciting. Well,
0: yeah, so so there's a there's a real distinction between I go to Mars Hill and I live in Seattle. Those two things are going to come up against each other. It's going to create a strong identity. And you can't
1: be blase about either of those two things. You You, can't can't just be complacent and be a Christian in Seattle, kind of. Well, certainly not at Mars Hill anyway. Right. And especially at the time. And so I just, it was shocking and just kind of gross to me to experience an entire almost region of people who were so complacent about their faith. Hmm. And even the times when I met people who were involved in their church, they don't really talk about it. They just don't really talk about it because it's more of a, it was more of a cultural thing. So I couldn't ever navigate who was really a Christian or not. It's just, I was just always, and still am kind of confused about that.
0: Well, I think that shows how difficult it is to define the word Christian, right? I mean, right. It's, it's almost like, the easiest definition is more of like a socio-historical definition. It's like people who religiously come from Christians. Yeah. You know, and and not something else or are not atheists. Yeah. and are not of another religion because once you try and start saying true Christians, not true Christians. There's no blood Su- test for that. <laughs> Sunday Christians, everyday Ironically Christians. Ironically though,
1: that period of my life is when I really understood that gay people can be Christians because all mm. the my gay Christian friends were the ones that I met when I was in Nashville. Interesting. I say all of them. I would, I could probably pick three, but yeah. still, I mean, all three statistically. of them.
0: You, That is weird that you live in Seattle and you had more gay friends in Nashville. That's its own interesting thing, but that's probably because we live in kind of the suburbs, right? Yeah. We're not living down in Capitol Hill. Are there? The youth, the youths.
1: We need to stop right now. Cause I feel like we're up, out to teeter into that thing where we talk about things we know nothing about good,
0: good call yep um I was just I had one thing to say you know she's talking about the birth of evangelicalism and I was just kind of trying to put myself in the minds of an Englishman around the birth of evangelicalism who's like okay this Church of England stuff has gotten really stale this has very little to do with Jesus or whatever and I think like what are the kind of things that clue them into that and then I thought, Oh, maybe it's something like 48% of evangelicals saying that Brett Kavanaugh should be confirmed even if he raped <laughs> Dr. Ford. That might be the kind of thing that makes people start a new movement. I don't know. So, and by the way, that came out uh, after this conversation with Karen. But we all we talk about a little bit, we, we touch on Charlottesville. You know, there obviously there's plenty of big stuff and the indictments had started streaming in to Trump's family and his uh, cabinet members before this conversation. But that's just, you know, you start asking yourself, what are the conditions under which a new religious movement breaks off? Right.
1: I mean, and what does it take? We might be looking at that.
0: And what does it take? And, and Karen's going to talk about that later. So I won't spoil it. Let's get back into that conversation with Karen Swallow Prior. So in your essay, you mentioned that John Wesley – could be a kind of an antidote to I don't know, problems for some of today's prominent evangelical leaders who are so adept at political maneuvering. What is it about John Wesley that makes him an antidote to some of those problems?
2: Going back to our earlier discussion about anti intellectualism, you know, Wesley was a student at Oxford University. He he was not really an anti intellectual. Um, if you read his sermons, they are powerful and moving and talk about things that I think a lot of evangelicals today would consider poli- politically incorrect or liberal, such as animal welfare and concern for animals and God's creation. There's a rich legacy there in his sermons and his writings that, that I think if most people today would not identify with 21st century American evangelicalism. The other thing, which is almost in the opposite direction, is that Wesley, along with George Whitfield, his contemporary, were wildly controversial. Wildly controversial. They drew huge crowds, uh, both in in England and America, but they also. I mean they were viciously mocked and satirized and attacked and made fun of on the stage. You know, play plays were produced that would make fun of, of evangelicals and Methodists. Personal attack, George Whitfield was 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 mocked for his pockmarked face. It was a brutal, brutal time in many respects. And so I think if we looked at that history a little more we would we would find that even in in some of our worst moments on social media and in our civil discourse we've still come a long way from the terrible name calling and mockery and controversies of those times and i think that's partly what that sense of history makes me not be as alarmed as some people are. I mean, I've said this sort of jokingly, but I actually mean it seriously when when we talk about some of the issues we're struggling with today in the church, I mean the injustices and you know and me too and, and those they're, they're, they are terrible. But my people 500 years ago were burning people at the stake and being burned. Yeah. <laughs> um that's our history. And, For like and I'm not doctrinal differences. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, God's standard has never changed, but I actually think in some ways we are doing a little bit better. Maybe we have a long way to go, but when we understand those were our people doing that and having that done to them, I, I mean, it just is, it's makes me thankful for what we're going through today, as bad as it is, because it's better than being burned at the stake.
0: Now that's interesting because another thing that ends up getting folded into folk evangelicalism, we might call it, Mm -hmm. is a pervasive, I wouldn't even call it a sense, I would call it a certainty, bordering on certainty, that the world is getting worse and worse, (laughs) and that the best thing is for it to just finally go to hell in a handbasket so that Christ will come back. I was certainly raised with a heavy dose of that, and I was not raised fundamentalist. I was raised pretty moderate, evangelical, non-denominational. You're basically expressing an opposite view in a sense of like, look how far we've come. And... That is just not what I tend to hear when I speak, especially with older evangelicals, maybe who are over 50 years of age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, how do you explain that?
2: This is one of my favorite soapboxes. So thanks a lot. No, like i about, Teed you up. I, fi- I find a way to talk about this in almost every single one of our my classes. You cannot study history. And again, I'm not an historian, but you cannot study literature, the kind of literature that I teach without facing this fact that... A lot of things are better now. I am so glad that women can vote and own property. A couple hundred years ago, we actually enslaved human beings on plantations, and that is horrible. We don't do that, at least not openly anymore. You know, I mean, I know human trafficking still exists and goes on, and we allow women to vote and have legal status, um, but now we kill babies, right? So hmm. – you know i'm not a math person but i think there if there were a way to kind of calculate the human depravity on the earth at any given time i think and i think the bible confirms this it would all be the same it's just like mm. we 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 grow and we give up culturally we un, we come to recognize one evil and then we do another one the book of ecclesiastes tells us you know do not i'm paraphrasing here but do not say oh you know where are the good old days or something it's it hasn't really changed.
0: So what is this combo though of fear and nostalgia that like has mm-hmm. sunk its roots so deeply into this culture that I was raised in?
2: I just think that human beings have always believe that and, and felt that way. It's just part of the human condition that we feel like things are getting worse because we can sense and experience them only against our own experience, mm. no matter how much we read or, you know, right. reading helps, <laughs> learning helps, but
0: it, things getting different equals things getting worse for a default human psychology.
2: You just put it so much better than I could. I, I, thank you. That, that, yeah, I think that's, a. I think you've just encapsulated. It's just, that's a human Thing. Feel yes. free
0: to use that in a lecture. I, I,
2: I probably will. Book. I mean, change is just hard. So, yeah. It so it just feels worse.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about like I've heard sort of baby boomers talk about people moving into their neighborhood and hearing different languages being spoken at the grocery store. And they speak about it negatively. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, I mean, <laughs> you're a Christian. You believe uh, theoretically that the kingdom of heaven is full of people of every tribe and nation and tongue. So who, who cares? Like, well, you know, but I think it's just a default. It's, I don't think right. there's anything incredibly sinister about that. It's just, right.
2: it's scary. It's, it's new. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's not weird. what it used to be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And until you then, until you meet a bunch of those people maybe, and they become your friends or whatever, then you go, oh, this is whatever. It's not what yeah. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of history and progress and equality, you make another claim in your essay that I think Most of my friends at this point in my life would not imagine to be the case, that evangelicalism has actually had a huge role in advancing freedom and quality historically. I would like you to back that up for any of those (laughs) people who are listening.
2: Okay. Well, not to repeat myself too much, but again, because of... The Reformation being rooted in the idea of the individual, and then the evangelical movement coming on and kind of rebooting that idea. Evangelicalism, again from its beginnings in 18th century England, emphasized the importance of the individual, the individual soul. So in other words, it, every individual has to have a conversion experience because their individual soul is important. That basic sort of salvific idea has huge implications for social class structure, just the idea of what it means to be a human being. And so it was the evangelicals in the later 18th and 19th century who who applied that idea to slavery, and they wanted to abolish the slave trade. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't racist in the broadest terms, in terms of, you know, having sort of prejudicial ideas about one race or another, but just the idea of wanting to free the slaves of, educating the poor. I I wrote a biography of Hannah Moore, one of these 18th century abolitionists who taught the poor of England to read. Why? Because she, she opened Sunday schools in some of the poorest villages where the children were basically, you know, white slaves and taught them to read because she thought they needed to read the Bible in order to have this individual conversion experience. So I'm not saying it was necessarily always the overt conscious intention, but the principles of the importance of each individual soul rippled out into these kinds of effects. Like if you teach people to read, you're giving them liberty, whether you realize it or not.
0: Well, uh, actually kind of (laughs) some evidence for your claim that doesn't necessarily reflect well on the particular evangelicals of the moment, but that does (laughs) serve your broader point is when slaves began to become Christians in America— There was a worry among the slave owning class that, well, we all assume that once they're saved, then they would have to be free. They would have to be set free because now they're spiritually Christ's and we can't own them anymore. So that led to a movement (laughs) theologically of basically arguing that a slave, even if saved, does not mean that they're free or some people arguing that they didn't have souls now, of course, this is an argument through negative example, but the point being, they had, they knew, they th- they they knew had to contend that with that. Yeah, 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 exactly. They had to exactly. contend with that. And and so that's really interesting. But on that point, so I'm going to be interviewing Michael O. Emerson also for this season. And, and he and Christian Smith wrote a book in 2000 called Divided by Faith. Are you familiar with that book?
2: I... Am. I'm trying to think if I actually have it on my shelf. I don't know if I do, but I am familiar with it. Yes.
0: It's fantastic. But they do argue that there is something about evangelicalism, especially white evangelicalism, because they distinguish between black evangelicalism and white evangelicalism really have treated the race issue almost mere opposites.
2: But, yeah, right. right. I mean, obviously. Yeah, yeah they obviously have. <laughs> uh, so,
0: I mean, I just, I kind of want to balance your claim of part of progress with, with sort of their central argument, which is, so that is true. There are these people who come from that tradition who really were important. And then, as you mm-hmm. said, there are sort of intellectual ripple effects of that thinking that led to eventually to progress, but also the record of the evangelical church as a whole, is pretty bad right. on, on race right. issues. And so you don't disagree with that? No, I don't. So then, okay, how do you think about those two things in your mind? That, hey, it was fertile ground for some heroes, but mm-hmm. it was also the standard person to come out of that ground would actually be worse than the mm-hmm. than their counterpart mm-hmm. in a non-evangelical mm-hmm. environment.
2: Well, let, let me say, at, uh, at the risk of sounding like, you know, a, a blind patriot, <laughs> let me draw an analogy. I mean, so... I believe that despite our, you know, our founding fathers' grave sins against humanity, against slaves, against women, their own moral failures in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, they set the groundwork for equality and liberty. Even though they didn't quite understand what that was or how sure. to apply it, I mean, and we do know that they, yeah, they that there were glimmers of recognition and, and trying to reconcile you know, what, what they were failing to do and what they knew they needed to do as I think we all do.
0: But so just as we might say to a Catholic, a 13 year old Catholic born into a big Italian or Irish Catholic family, if they came to URI for advice and said, Hey, how can I balance out sort of what my default settings are? We might say something like, well, yeah, there's a lot of family value and traditional value in the way you were raised, but you might want to pay attention to making sure that you've really made your faith your own we might say something like that. Yeah. What is no. the, what's the version of that for an evangelical given that history on racial issues and that historic blind spot? Is should evangelicals just have a similar kind of thing that they watch out for?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, I, I I like your family analogy because part of sort of self-examination and self-reflection and individuation that every, you know, family member, young person has to go through is is Oftentimes, like distancing yourself from your from your family and your tradition. Right. But then, to you know, some people can separate and distance themselves as unreflectively as, as accepting it. Of course. And so, so there needs to be reflection, like understanding the tradition, understanding the history, whether it's of our family members and our family traditions or of evangelicalism. And again, that goes back to, to my essay. I'm saying, you, you know, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to agree. But please don't. Uh, derive your definition of evangelicalism on, you know, America's past two years.
0: Can I make a counter argument though with that and just say, you could imagine someone saying this word and this, the way it's been used in our culture has gotten so far from the source that to publicly associate with it, might draw people into some other version of it that is not as robust as the one that you're Mm -hmm. talking about, such that then they will be co-opted by these political or social movements that are Mm -hmm. doing great harm. And so there's someone who might feel like you're right. And there were a couple good hundred years in there, but (laughs) it's been squandered. And now it's more dangerous to stay than it is Mm -hmm. to leave or Mm -hmm. Mm rename or Mm rebrand. What would Mm -hmm. you, what would you say to that?
2: I mean, I, w- I would have to honestly say that, you know, evangelicalism was birthed out of something that they saw wrong, right? And and mm-hmm. uh, it, it started something new. I- I'm not going to say that 100 years from now we won't look back at that this moment now and see that something new was birthed, because it could be, regardless of what mm-hmm. we call it. Whether it's a correction of evangelicalism that continues or something entirely new, I mean, and that definitely could happen because of, of how evangelicalism has been historically defined, that still describes my faith and my understanding, but that's not a hill I want the church to die on.
0: You you do have optimism in your essay about the future of the evangelical church. It seems like the average observer would would think, no, that's this is more like the death rattle. I think a lot of my friends would think that. Why, for you, within the community that would still consider itself evangelical, why optimism and not pessimism going forward?
2: Well, I mean, I just finished writing a book on the virtues, and one of the virtues that I talk about is hope. And I think as Christians, we're obligated to cultivate the virtue of hope. I mean, I'm not saying a starry-eyed Pollyanna who is denying, you know, real problems, but it's mainly looking at history, the lessons from history, the good and the bad from history that helps temper my understanding of where we are today. It's not entirely good and it's not entirely bad, but I see enough progress, I guess, in, in learning and correcting of errors over the course of hundreds of years That makes me want to continue to invest in it and leave something for the next, you know, people who come 100 years from now.
0: So speaking of how bad it has gotten at this moment, (laughs) uh, allow me to pit you against you as a white evangelical against the what we know to be the statistically average white evangelical who, if they heard this would say, or if they heard you say earlier, as a private citizen, you don't support Donald Trump. More than half of white evangelicals would say, hey, that's wrong. Get on board. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. I say all the time, I don't really have a problem with people voting for Donald Trump. I'm actually more interested and more concerned by the continuing support in this demographic. So let's say it's not just someone who voted for him, but someone who's like actively supporting him after Charlottesville, after all the corruption after all the indictments, after whatever, fill it out however you want. Do you have conversations with those Mm -hmm. folks? And and how does that go?
2: I truly think that those of us who do not support Trump, whether we're individuals like myself or the media or thought leaders, for lack of a better term, I think that we are further polarizing by putting people even more on the defensive. Hmm. I believe that we are right. <laughs> right. And I believe that when you're right, you need to wield that power and authority in being right gently and carefully if you want to win over those who disagree with you. And I don't think there are very many people doing that today. And so I think most of us who don't support Trump are making it worse.
0: Karen, I can't talk to you without talking about Me Too and Church Too, it's being said now, and I think it's pretty undeniable that Me Too has come to evangelical Christianity. And I also don't think it's that deniable that you have been a fairly public and visible player in that. Not, of course, leveling accusations, but in terms of public writings. Do you agree with both of those statements, first of all? Yes, I do. Is it overdue for that moment was, was evangelicalism overdue?
2: If we were just a couple weeks or months behind Hollywood, I suppose that's pretty fast for evangelicalism. <laughs> that's um. funny. That's a funny
0: way of thinking about it. Yeah. it's pretty good, I guess.
2: Of course it's all way overdue. Yeah. But again, you know, history is long and slow. Justice is as well. And so, what did we just recently celebrate, or the hundredth anniversary of women voting or we're coming up on it yeah. or something? So, in a couple of lifetimes, we're you know we're coming even farther. I mean, this is another issue of justice, and power structures and cultural moods and atmospheres that have existed for decades and longer don't change overnight. here Here's a gr- another source of my optimism. I would never have belie- believed me if you told me a year ago that one of the you know the dominant patriarchal leading most beloved figures in my denomination would come tumbling down because three thousand women signed their name asking for him to be held accountable
0: mm. and you, I never you're would referring have thought to of, Paige Patterson, the president yes, of South
2: Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, yeah, Seminary, but he's a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention right. Big deal. um. It is a big deal and it's but it's not about just him, it's not about one person because one person one man's power depends on the consent of many men
0: right right and and, and just to so, do the those events again, so he had some very troubling accusations. he was basically and this is around the same same day you got hit by the bus, right he was yes. announced to have been put on like leave, but still given a nice, like a golden parachute or whatever. And then Mm -hmm. you and some other women wrote a letter, 3,000 Southern Baptist women signed it and he's gone and no parachute. It was a decisive thing at this year's convention, right?
2: Right, right. Exactly. It was, that decision was followed up by some really important resolutions at the convention about the abuse of women and moral leadership of, of pastors. And I I do want to make clear just to for people who might not have followed it, that Patterson was not accused of any kind of harassing behavior of himself toward women, but it was more of a misogynistic culture of encouraging abused women to stay and objectifying women, including a teenage girl. And, you know, just sort of that culture, that old boys network culture, you know, that it's long time to be gone.
0: Now, do you think we talked about how within evangelical tradition, there are these strengths, some weaknesses we've discussed are an anti-intellectual tendency, and then also kind of a blind spot for racial or systemic issues. Mm -hmm. Is there something about evangelicalism that lends it to this misogyny or patriarchy, or does it stack up better than other traditions or roughly in the middle?
2: Well, you know, the flip answer that I want to give, which I don't mean to, you know, to take it lightly, but it needs to be said is, if it's an evangelical problem, then what's Hollywood's problem, right? Hmm. Oh, like <laughs> what know?
0: explains the problem everywhere else?
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. To me the problem is is that Christians and evangelicalism the church and evangelicalism should be the last place where these problems are. That's the problem. So it's our own sort of, you know, contradiction or hypocrisy or our inability to really live out what we say we believe, which is part of the human condition. Again, I don't mean it to be flip, but when we find this problem everywhere in the Catholic church and in Hollywood, and
0: I I don't, I don't think we can, yeah. Gymnastics. Right.
2: Right. But we need to be the ones who are pioneering and leading the, the way to change and to repentance and, and ultimately, freedom from this kind of uh, of oppression that not only hurts women, but hurts men too, and families and children. All sexual sin is so damaging to everyone that it touches directly or indirectly.
0: I want to ask you one question that I want you to give four answers to. Uh, the question is, what is our responsibility to do about this in order to bring about progress people within the evangelical community. I'd like you to speak to male leaders and then Mm -hmm. female leaders and then male and then female, just regular church attenders, non-leadership.
2: I have a lot to say about the male leaders. Great. Let's start (laughs) there. there. Let's start there. So, you know, the male leaders, the pastors and the teachers and the theologians need to intentionally create space for these discussions and conversations and encourage it because the woman suffering silently in the pew is not likely to come forward with encouragement, but is far less likely to come forward if there's no explicit encouragement to, to know and to be assured that there is help available. Churches hire accountants to do book work. Why would they not hire the experts in these matters to train yeah. and uh, staff and so forth? So they need to be proactive In prevention, proactive in offering safety and comfort, and proactive in just listening to women. Don't go about these solutions and make plans and strategies without listening, well, not just to women, but to victims themselves. And it's really not rocket science, right? right? It's pretty simple. But I think it just requires getting our heads out of the sand and being proactive and not assuming that everything's all right.
0: Okay, next up is female leaders. What is your advice to your fellow female leaders in the evangelical church?
2: I'm not a victim, so I don't want to speak as a victim. But the victims that I know, especially within my own Southern Baptist Convention, some of them are in positions where they are still too traumatized to speak up. And so... They are just healing and uh, surviving. And so I again, I want to use whatever platform I have to raise these issues and then point to their voices when when decisions are being made and so forth. and and I admit to being someone who's who is blind to a lot of these problems as you know, as short a time ago as, you know, a few years ago. I mean, I'm becoming increasingly aware because of the power of the internet and being connected with more people about the kinds of problems that many women have had that I have not had in my own, you know, church and academic context.
0: Okay, let's move to just regular churchgoers, non-leaders. What can both male and female evangelicals do to support a better culture, a better sort of sexual gender culture?
2: Just simply speaking up, I, I think, again, to go back to Paige Patterson, he didn't happen by himself. There were people who supported him, people who didn't speak up, people who laughed at the jokes, people who didn't question. You know, think about what happens when you're in a room of people, a small group is gathered and and someone says something inappropriate or tells an inappropriate joke. There's always that sort of split second where whatever the first thing that happens whether it's to laugh along with it or to just not, that can turn the whole room. You know, so cultures are like that. Power structures are like that. It, it can often just take being the one to speak up, even gently, to turn the whole room, to turn the whole yeah. church, to her- turn the whole culture. So just be aware of of the great power that we have in turning a conversation, raising a question, speaking up.
0: I mean, the the elephant in the room is Donald Trump and the Access Hollywood tapes. If I or my group of people are psychologically pre-committed or politically pre-committed to being apologists for Donald Trump, and everyone knows those tapes, and with the you know Cohen alleging you know the hush money to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, that stuff's not going away. Is mm-hmm. it possible? To defend Trump for these actions and simultaneously make progress on this issue,
2: I, I I don't think so. I mean, not for those people who are are doing that.
0: So let I'll, me I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. Someone yeah. says, okay. "Well, I would never do that," and I want all the women in my community mm-hmm. to be treated well. But this is just what politicians and famous people do, and mm-hmm. you know JFK, et cetera.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, but have they lost credibility amongst the women that they're with or how, how do you respond to that?
2: I mean, I don't find it acceptable. I mean, I, I think character matters and I came of age and had that grounded to my thinking when Bill Clinton ran the first time and I haven't changed my mind about that. And, no, I I think that we are losing credibility and we're losing moral authority by not – holding someone like that accountable. And there are different ways to I don't I don't know what it means to hold someone accountable, but I know what it doesn't mean. And I think that we're losing an opportunity to do that.
0: The last thing I need to ask you about this issue is it inevitably intersects with a theological discussion that is ongoing between what is called complementarianism and egalitarianism, which relates to the ordination of women to be pastors and whatnot. Where I want to go on this is, I just want to go, well, I'm an egalitarian. I think women are totally equal. There's sort of no speed bumps. There's no theological speed bumps for me on the way to fixing this problem. But I know many people who I care for deeply who don't agree with that. And and they do believe that there are fundamental differences between the, the genders, that the way that God sees us and the roles that God has for us. But some people on the left might say there's no way to fight this culture of sexism and misogyny and patriarchy without giving women full theological equality. Or they would say something like that. But you are but here what to about say. Willow,
2: what about Willow Creek, right? And Hollywood? I mean, mm, it, it, we aren't Will going Hybels, to find. Yeah. yeah, we aren't going. <laughs> the problem is so pervasive, we cannot blame it on these kinds of things.
0: So they're, they're sort of separate issues for you then? Yes. Earlier you talked about hope and cultivating hope within evangelicalism in general. I'd like to ask if you have hope and why about evangelicalism and this Me Too stuff and and just the depths of darkness there.
2: Well, I think it's important, first of all, to define what we mean by hope. And hope isn't the same as optimism or wishfulness. I mean, the virtue of hope has to do with a future good that is difficult but possible to obtain yeah. so to even want to have hope means to recognize the difficulty of some future good and anything that is worthwhile is usually going to be difficult to obtain so we have to accept that as a given so if we understand that hope exists pretty much only or mostly within difficult circumstances then I think that gives us the freedom to hope more and of course mm. as Christians we know our hope is in Christ and it is in the future. Again looking in the past as I keep talking about we can we can see how far we've come and we're not going to get it perfect but we can leave something for those who come after us to build on and that's the most that I think that we can hope on on this earth and it's definitely worthwhile so and it beats the alternative. <laughs>
0: Well, Karen, thank you so much. What a fantastic conversation. Have a great evening.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, Ellen, so we have two chunks of uh, audio there, about 30 glorious minutes with Dr. Pryor. And what are you thinking about?
1: I'm thinking about how... I grew up I'm I don't know I must have been taught this that the world is going to continue getting worse oh, yeah. because that goes back to our conversation about hell which is like this idea of like everything is going to destruct. Yeah. And it's you know very scary and Yeah. I love what she said about if, like, if you had a like an evil graphic, yeah, if
0: you could actually, and you could add see, like, up. everything
1: would sort of even itself yeah. out because we have gotten a lot better at some things, yeah. And as a side note, I would point out we didn't just start killing, quote unquote, killing babies.
0: We didn't. That's oh, that's always going been going on, going on for it. I really, yeah, we, at, we made it. I mean, easier. I would like it we if it was like, easier. well,
1: we have the women can vote now, but now we go It's like that's not a good.
0: Well fine. But I see what she's saying, but you get it. She's saying As an yeah.
1: abortion connoisseur. Every time we talk about abortion, it abortion gets re- my terms for myself get worse.
0: But they get worse, yeah. We sh- anyway. think we would be making there's another place we're not making progress. <laughs> your own terminology for yourself. Yeah. But that's a point of hers well taken. And in fact, Robert Bella, super respected mainline liberal
1: do you think he goes by Rob Bell?
0: He's dead, but he might have. Oh <laughs> He probably didn't. I think he went by Bob, actually. Anyway, Robert Bella was this super preeminent sociologist of American culture and uh, American religious culture. And he has a book on my shelf called Religion and Human Evolution. It's a 600-page book. It's like his theory of basically how religion came to be with human beings through mammals into primates, into humans. And even that guy, like, he's, he's liberal. That guy's like, are we getting better? No, are we getting worse? No, like human nature stays the same. It just
1: sort of is what it is.
0: And so, and I don't know. You know, there, there's certainly ways in which we treat each other better at a public level. It seems. Do you um, think
1: animals can be religious? That's, that's a different show. Maybe that's a
0: different show. That's a good question. I, I, I mean, because the Bible just said seems made to me say think that he thinks can. like. No his his argument is that like basically mammals moms taking care of them. Creates this uh, relaxed field, basically uh, a time in a young mammal's life when they don't need food and shelter, that stuff is provided for them, and they play. And from play in mammals comes language, ritual, religion, culture, art, all of it. That's mammals. From mammals. He's not
1: saying human.
0: Yeah, I mean, we are part of that, but. It starts before there are humans. We
1: could I could we can get love. into this.
0: And love comes from maternal care of mammal mothers. It's very interesting. Anyway, we're off topic. Ellen, I definitely wanted to get your thoughts on her about Me Too, Church Two, Evangelicalism. Go. Anything you got. <laughs>
1: well, the hashtag me Too, hashtag times up is what <laughs>
0: Is that what you call it? Yeah. That's how you say it in English?
1: It's it's not Me Too or Time's Up. It's hashtag Me Too. I think that's going to go in the history books. In the annals. Yeah. I think it's really important to talk about it in the church. Yeah, in the context of the church. It was like so crazy to me when she's like, well, I guess we're we're only like, what, a couple of weeks behind Hollywood. It's like, oh, shit. I never thought
0: of it that way. It's true.
1: Yeah, it's true. Because we think like... Oh, Hollywood, this just, you know, we don't, but you know, the. Uh, I
0: do. It's pretty, dis, I mean, it's well, pretty despicable. It's just a like a ways.
1: workplace, you know, it's yeah. like the restaurant business. It's like, what well, it, I don't really take any time to think about it, but mm. it's like, we do hope that we would be sort of pioneers in how things ought to be. Yeah. As far as how we treat women and children. Mm-hmm. And it's really embarrassing that it's not that way.
0: Well, I, let's let's be clear. The only way you could prove it's not that way is if you had like a study about how the average Hollywood producer treated their people and how the average pastor treated their That's employees. That's true, Dan. So but we what I'm saying yeah. is
1: we know that it's not not that way.
0: How do we know that? Have you seen the data? I mean, I don't I, mean, I don't know that study. I'm saying Big scandals that rise to the top and become if news stories. we're only talking
1: about the news stories. Yeah, those sure. are
0: not represent. I mean, Weinstein had a huge, disgusting operation going. I don't know how many people like Weinstein or not quite as powerful as him had one-tenth of that operation. I don't know.
1: Okay, but here's what right? I know about the church as a whole is people are so much more ingrained to look out for others and— Sweep things under the rug because, okay, for example, I went to a Christian school and there was this one guy, this one teacher who was grooming young women. And Uh,
0: for success or physically (laughs) grooming them?
1: He was uh, grooming them for what I would say is Uh, sexual abuse. uh, Oh. And so what happened is he should have gone to jail Yeah, But because it was such a small Christian school and the parents were all friends with the teachers, it was like this gross situation where they decided, well, let's just like pray about it and not call the authorities and just sweep it under the rug. And now I've got friends who are in their 30s. Saying like that was so messed up. Nobody protected me. The parents didn't protect me, and now here is this guy who's still teaching at a school. Oh, geez. And it was all because it was like, well, we can pray these things. We can, he can be healed of this, and there was this sort of like tribal thing where it's like we can't let outsiders know.
0: Yeah, that it hurts this the brand. This happens. It right. does hurt the brand. So. I can't believe I'm in the position of defending evangelical A church pedophile? here. pedophile? Oh. <laughs> certainly not defending that <laughs> person. Okay, the, I didn't know where person. you were going with that. <laughs> no, but like, I mean, so in the church, we have ways of avoiding scandal and sweeping it under the rug. We have Christian language we'll use. We can call upon prayer or other sort of spiritual acts to supplement or take the place of proclaiming the truth. But in Hollywood they have profit motive, they have shareholders, they have the sure, branding. Everybody's of the studio. got a system set up. I don't know, I don't really know how to disentangle those. I think obviously involving God in any explicit way is blasphemous. Whereas yeah. involving profit is not blasphemous. It's just greedy and unjust. Right. So it's it's hard It's to, all
1: bad. It's all bad. It's very
0: <laughs> hard to adjudicate between the two. I I think that what Karen was getting at is like Maybe her point was less about how much abuse goes on in the evangelical church and more about sort of the vitality of evangelicals who are willing to push for change. And in that case, if the evangelical church is only a few months behind Hollywood,
1: and that's more about also the times you know, the difference between Me Too and Time's Up,
0: uh, Time's Time's Up up is more like
1: equality. Like in the workplace, a lot of actresses were right. not getting paid. That That's how that yeah. kind of. That's,
0: started. that's Francis McDormand. Where Me like, Too is more about this, the sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah, Me Too is like, I've also been abused. And then Time's Up is like Francis McDormand at the Oscars, like put this clause in your contracts with your female yeah, directors yeah, and yeah, actresses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Just so we're clear.
0: I, under, I understand.
1: I'm not just throwing around hashtags willy nilly.
0: <laughs> willy nilly. We know what these hashtags <laughs> mean. Hashtag willy nilly. Well, that's heavy stuff. I loved this conversation with Karen. I I don't come down exactly on the, all the same spots that she does. I, I don't know. I imagine you don't necessarily either. No. But I, no, how great, I, of like how clear and thoughtful she was. I just loved it.
1: I could listen to another hour of that.
0: Maybe someday. Another thing she mentioned is that justice is long and slow, but she seems to believe that it does come in the end. How did that hit you? What did that make you think about?
1: Well, this is probably going to seem unrelated, but today I. I You don't
0: say, Ellen.
1: (laughs) Everything I say, unrelated. I'm not going to talk about a TV show, but I am going to talk about Rush Limbaugh. (laughs) So
0: in the true crime podcasting world. No.
1: So I heard a little bit of a clip on, I don't remember, it was NPR something today. And this is right now, as we're recording, this is sort of like right after Kavanaugh testified. We don't like have. We
0: keep putting out episodes like long after. It's the, fine.
1: People don't. We're, we're it's in fine. the middle
0: of the FBI investigation after the main hearings right now. Right. So we yes. don't know. It's
1: very exciting. You guys know, but we don't know. You know, it's, but we don't. Yeah.
0: Time travel. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Anyway, so on Rush Limbaugh's show today, he was talking about how there is this war on women, and he called them feminazis. War on
0: men, you mean?
1: Uh, sorry, I misspoke. Limbaugh
0: admitting a war on women. <laughs> no,
1: he is <laughs> and, the war on And then
0: a pig hit my windshield. Yeah. yeah,
1: No, he was talking about the war on men and how this whole Me Too thing is like ruining all these men's lives, and he called all these females that are coming out— you know, about their abuse. He's calling them feminazis. And it's just such a strange moment in history. It's almost like a little time capsule Mm. that in 10 years from now, or when my daughter is in her twenties and thirties, it's going to be such a crazy pivotal point in Mm. these history books where it's like all the men lost their shit because they were worried that they were going to lose a little bit of freedom that women have never had. So it's very exciting that Rush Limbaugh is losing his shit right now.
0: Yeah, you. I don't like it when you put me in a position to defend men in the Me Too. No, moment. I'm not. Ta- I'm not, not talking about that. All men are losing their shit. He is losing his shit. And what are the chances? Let's be honest. What are the chances that Rush Limbaugh has someone waiting to, like, with evidence waiting oh, to wouldn't go? That'd be
2: great.
1: I well, mean, I will say though that one of the things that Karen was talking about, like church leaders responsibility in this whole thing is that it is without accountability. If there is any sort of like neglect or abuse going on, it's very damaging for the men and women of character in the church who are really loving people really, really well because all the pastors that I know, all the men in leadership that I know are incredibly kind and compassionate with an open ear. And so I do see, A really scary time, a little bit for men who are like, "Wait a minute! I hope I don't get accused of something because I never did anything." So I, I, I totally get that. But well,
0: and remember we talked about the Billy Graham rule last season. Will we see a a rising of the application of the Billy Graham rule to avoid? Any future, right. like it's never been on my calendar that I was alone with this person,
1: right? And I that's can see that, that's yeah. Weird and and I understand. Yeah. I'm a, again, I'm a realist, so I understand how that's kind of scary. But it's like if all the abusers are now being held accountable, and that is what's coming to the crest, then we should be. Pr- and well, I know a lot that's of great, yeah. yeah. And you and I would say like all the great men that we know are. I'm not saying you're a great man. I was just
0: going to say, that's too far, Ellen. I don't think you (laughs) would say, like,
1: what an exciting time for women. It is an exciting
0: time. It feels like footage I've seen compiled on CNN documentaries of the original women's lib movement. Yeah. That kind of, that, the fiery fire of that moment. And I don't, like, that was all tied up in the sexual revolution, which is difficult to untangle because I, I really reject a lot of the sexual revolution, but. Some of the women's lib stuff was right. fantastic. It's so it's and interesting. Isn't
1: it weird how looking back, um, I mean, our our parents were a part of some of this stuff. And to us, it sounds yeah. like it's like this part of history. I'm pretty then, sure my
0: parents were not really a part of it either way.
1: Oh, my parents definitely were before okay. the before Maranatha came along. but, but um,
0: <laughs> Before the Jesus movement swept yeah. them up. Yeah.
1: But I was just listening to, or no, I read an article yesterday about how in Germany, they're trying to pass a law so that intersex can, so that there can be a third gender on visas and, and applications and things like that. Because intersex is actually like, you know, if you know about this stuff, you know that intersex and transgender is completely different. Intersex is like when you have, forgive my language, like a little bit of a mix up. Intersex
0: um, is legitimately it's, it's, it's a, where there is medical lack of clarity or a combination right, of like candles, chromosomes whatever yeah yeah
1: a number 3 a combo well anyway it's i just learned that the a month ago california became the first state in our country to ban unnecessary sexual resignment surgery for children hmm and i was so interesting Shocked by that, but sort of horrified that this has been going on for this long.
0: Where it's not medically necessary, right?
1: And people just kind of want to make a decision for their kids, and then these yeah. kids grow up, and you know, where are my testicles? Yeah, that stuff is. What I'm saying is like <laughs> history is long and slow, and it's crazy to me that just now full circle. Or, <laughs> I'm talking about gonads. We Where came did we start?
0: All, you just said history is long and slow, and that's how I started. So we're full circle. Just okay. in, in that.
1: I'll take well, it.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> Ellen, thank you.
1: Did I add any value?
0: Yes, of course you did, and I love. I, I love, think you
1: like me more than any of our listeners. No,
0: I get a lot of. I get a lot of emails and. Why people don't you
1: forward me, those emails I'm, yeah, I'm to me so bad. I can have a little encouragement, Dan? Guys,
0: post somewhere or email us, and I'll forward it to Ellen, so that she knows that she's loved. It doesn't do any good if only I know that she's loved. That's true. That's just not good. So if you want to get in touch with Karen, she has a website. Google her name, Karen Swallow Pryor. On Reading Well is the latest book, but she's got a bunch of others. And she's really, she's just doing fantastic work. And we're glad that she was here. And we're grateful that you listened to us. She works
1: at Liberty, but it didn't matter. No, you it didn't her. matter.
0: Right. We, we talked about that earlier. It didn't ruin it, hopefully, nope. for you certainly not, not, for me. not for
1: me, but I think the listeners At the end of that would be like, oh yeah, yeah I wouldn't have guessed
0: Well, we'll see you guys next week, thank you for listening Robert Bella, super respected Mainline liberal Do you
1: think she goes by Rob Bell?
0: Robert Bella
1: Oh, can we take that out? <laughs> uh, see, now you have to Hi, Chris. That's what I do. I just start swearing, so he has to. Okay, hold on. I want to take it from here.